Let me tell you about a person you might know. You probably don't know who she specifically is, but you probably know somebody like her. She's a young career woman named Dakota. She grew up in a family where she was both loved and nourished by parents and two sets of grandparents. Uh, she even likes her two brothers. Uh, as a child, she was taken to church, as, and uh, she sort of enjoyed church until her che- teenage years when she could no longer reconcile a good God who would allow such suffering to occur in the world. So she left church and went to university, and she had a desire to be trained in something where she could be of help to humanity. First thing she thought of was teaching, especially teaching the underprivileged, but she also considered journalism, which was her ultimate choice. Because in journalism, she could expose uh, the burning issues of life to our world, and, or burning issues of our world to, to all around her. And she could do it in a way in which uh, she might bring some, some deep thinking and even change to our world. But either way, Dakota wanted to work in a way that would make a difference, not just for her life, but for others. And she wanted to change the world and to make it a better place. So as a reporter, uh, she was quite good. And she climbed until, uh, in terms of her career until she got a job offer in Washington, D.C. with a, a major news network. And she was sitting in on the congressional hearings. And she believes that there is good legislation And there's bad legislation, and through her reporting and writing on her blog, that uh, she can help people make decisions of what is good and what is bad, uh, and and the laws that are coming up. And, And she believes that it's up to our elected officials to make the United States a better place, especially for those who have no voice, who are downtrodden, who are the underserved. Dakota no longer believes in a God, but she does have high hopes that her work can make both this place, the United States of America, and the whole world a better place for humanity to live in. If last week we were talking about um, what is secular materialism, I think what, how I would summarize it is through data, and through all the material senses that we have, uh, we can honestly say that science is God. That all that we know, all that we rely on is, is what we learn through science. Uh, that is what's known as uh, a secular materialism. And there's four basic worldviews going on around us today. Secular materialism was one of them. Uh, pantheism, because it believes in spiritual forces with no personality, is another one. Uh, not growing as it used to uh, 20, 30 years ago. The Judeo-Christian view, which I'm thoroughly in, and it's been the driving force behind Western culture for the last 1,500 years. And then today, secular humanism. 
if secular materialism says science is God, uh, secular humanism says humanity is God. That our only hope for the ongoing uh, uh, existence of mankind is through mankind. Uh, and maybe that is best uh, summarized by a person who lived over, uh, oh, oh, gee, 180 years ago. His name was uh, William E. Henley. William E. Henley was in extreme physical and emotional pain. He was sickly, and he had had a, uh, a leg amputated. So in this form, he sits down, and he's really mad at life. He's mad at, the, at, at what's happened to him, but he takes charge. And he writes a poem called Invictus. And Invictus is probably the seedbed of what has followed with secular humanity, uh, with secular humanism. And here it is. And I, I must admit, when I first read this poem, it must have been seventh or eighth grade, my English teacher made me write it, and it moved me. Yeah, I was thinking, that, you know, this is, this is what life is all about. So William E. Henley, Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, Black as the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but horrors of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and, and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I love that poem. I didn't memorize it. I have trouble memorizing. But I just thought, you know, this is what a tough person is like. He takes charge, he takes responsibility, he doesn't rely on anybody else. And it is at the core of what we call secular humanism. Now, I, uh, I have made available each week, we're not going to have overheads, but I've made available each week what I call uh, an outline, and it simply would be step-by-step step where I am going to be taking us, okay? And please get that as you enter in the future. There's two more weeks that we're going to do after this. But... Uh, Secular humanism has at its core the belief that human beings are alone in the world and they must act responsibly by forming their ethics solely from their human experience, human reason, and their logic. The poem Invictus describes, you might say, answering to ourselves, but also... Secular humanism means that the whole species can find itself sort of working together. The famous philosopher Paul McCartney, yeah, you thought he was a songwriter, but the famous philosopher Paul McCartney wrote a song about a, a, a love relationship that was broken, and the song was, we can work it out. This should be adopted by secular humanists. Together we can work it out by coming together using our superior intelligence and our common humanity. We can come to conclusions about how we can live in harmony and create a utopian lifestyle for all the people. In the musical hair, uh, 
They talked about harmony and understanding in the age of Aquarius. It, the, at the core is we must agree to the following values of secular humanism. The first is this. Man is alone in the world. Humanity is solely responsible for its survival and progress. It is up to us, and it's up to us alone. It's not going to happen without us. The second core value is radical individual freedom. Uh, each person has the freedom to choose as he or she wishes. We are free to think for ourselves, and we don't have to have others telling us how to think. The magazine of secular humanism is called The Free Thinker. Unless, of course, that means you don't agree with me in my free thinking. Because my free thinking tells you how you should be thinking. And otherwise, understand that I'm smarter and no, more noble than you, so you ought to be agreeing with me as you read The Free Thinker. Magazines are written to influence you, not to set you free. Okay, the next core value is that moral truth comes from human dialogue. There are no absolutes, but instead just democratic uh, consensus. So if there are no absolutes, where does truth come? Where do, uh, uh, where do our morals and our ethics come from? They come, uh, they are all relative, but they come from people and situations where we find ourselves. That means in some places, for some people, violence is okay towards another person. Murder, even cannibalism, might be okay. While in other cultures, polygamy might be more advantageous to many than monogamy. Therefore, if that culture has decided polygamy is okay, then it should be okay in that culture. There is no one set of rules. No rule works all the time. But together, whatever that group barrier or boundary may be, together we can work it out. Sin, the next core value, well, sin is relative. It's outdated. It's for a time before... Uh, humans evolved into this, this higher form of existence. Adultery might be good. It's not sin. Murder might have a good reason. Maybe that person doesn't deserve to live. Using your power to put uh, others under you, uh, even slavery, uh, you can reason that slavery could be a, a good thing and an acceptable thing for a culture. Because all ethics are relative. Sin depends upon the culture that you're in. And besides, it's a three-letter word. We don't like three-letter words. Jesus. Who's Jesus? What a guy. God and Jesus, well, they say there is no God. But Jesus is an historical figure, probably the greatest teacher and one of the greatest moral examples in human history. But that is all that he is. He's just another human. He's not God. He did no miracles. He died and is buried somewhere. We just can't find him yet. And it is only our memories of him that we can claim as that makes him one of the 
prime examples to follow, but one of many other examples that we might also follow. All religions are basically the same. They're man reaching to an unknown God who really doesn't care about him because he doesn't exist. Now, uh, you probably know people who approach life from a secular point of view, from a secular humanistic point of view, who share some of these core values. And, and, and they do their best to be true to themselves and to what other people have told them is true. So there is no real, you might say, everlasting, true, capital T, truth. C.S. Lewis says, you know, this is not new. He died in, I think, 1963. But C.S. Lewis was aware of this type of thinking in his university life about 75 to 80 years ago. And he countered it with these words from his book, Mere Christianity. He says, as secular humanists look at who Jesus is, he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone else saying the really foolish things that people often say about Jesus. They say this, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Now, that is the one thing we must not say, says C.S. Lewis. A man who was merely a man and said that sort of thing, uh, <clears throat> that, that sort of things, uh, Jesus said, would not be just a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You cannot shut him up for a fool. I mean, you can shut him up for a fool, and you can spit on him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I love that quote. And yet, I can never remember it when I'm talking to secular humanists. <laughs> and, and But one of the ways I engage them is, well, you know, if, if there is no God and Christianity has existed for, uh, for 2,000 years, who was this Jesus? And we get into discussions about that. Well, let's change it just a little bit now. If that is the secular humanism approach, let's look at God's approach. Humanity. God says humanity is his special and free creation. Genesis 1.26 tells us, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule. In other words, they would have a, a reason to be on earth. So it says, there, the, you know, humanity flows and covers the earth. And, and, but it's humanity that's sort of like a pot of soup. But uh, the, the pot of soup we want to call, let's say, chicken soup, okay? And uh, it's called chicken soup because there is a chicken in the soup. Otherwise, what is it? It's soup. Not anything else but soup. Well, if you take the chicken out of the soup, you take God out of being the creator of humanity, 
what you have is just a bunch of people. You have ingredients. You have, you, you, you know, you have your noodles. You, you have your broth. You, you have your, your, your seasonings. You have all these things. But you don't have what the core of it is called, chicken soup. If we are special creations, as the Genesis account describes, Genesis account describes, then we share some of God's brilliance with him. And like him, we are intended to live in harmony with him first, but also with one another. And if there is no harmony, then there's something between that relationship with God. And if there is no harmony, there's something wrong with this relationship that we have with one another. We are also gifted, Scripture makes very clear, with a free will. But we tend to bring those around us to make their free wills agree with our free will, so it's, they're not really all that free. Um, and if there's a conflict, one of us must have a faulty reasoning. And I want to say, if you're in conflict with me, what's wrong with you? There's something wrong with your reasoning because it doesn't agree with mine. I'm smarter, I'm better, I'm more moral. Grow up, agree with me. Uh, the Bible also tells us, in, in uh, contradiction to secular humanism, that humanity is a fallen creature. There is sin in the world, and it is willful self, uh, uh, you might say, self-disregard for God and for others around us. The reason there is a lack of unity in the world is because people are self-centered. They don't unify themselves with others. They unify around their own thoughts and their own desires. Now, secular humanism is not a new invention that you might say has evolved. As we've gotten smarter and smarter, we realize we don't need God anymore, and we cast him aside. Secular humanism is as old as Genesis 11. If you have your Bibles, I, I think it's a great place to turn. And I want to share with you uh, one of the great accounts of, of Genesis. Uh, now, in Genesis 12, we come across Abraham. And in Genesis 12, we have, we have strong evidence of Abraham and everything after existing. In Genesis 1 to 11, we're still looking for much of the uh, historical proof, okay? But uh, Genesis 11 uh, tells us about the Tower of Babel. And this is so telling. And if you think secular humanism started you know, about 200 years ago, listen to this. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. And as men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. And they, said to we, uh, and they said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used the bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the earth. Friends, that's, that's 2,000. That is humanism as we know it. You know, I, I like to say in scripture, there's three lettuces. The first lettuce, let us make man in our image. 
The second lettuce is let us make bricks. The third lettuce is let us make a name for ourselves. Let's build a city. Do you, do you see the role that these humans are playing in the Tower of Babel? They are using the exact same terminology as God does when he makes us. And what they're saying is, is now we can do everything that God did originally. We don't need him anymore. We do not believe him. We are fine on our own. So they make bricks. They build themselves a city and a tower that goes to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and stay together because together we can solve any problem that comes. There's those three lettuces then. But yet in the midst of even though this is all happening, uh, they are still unable to stop God from stepping in. God does exist and he steps in and says, not so fast. And now I'm in verse six. The Lord said is if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they, they plan to do will be impossible for them. He, throughout Scripture, when God steps in, a phrase that's often used is, nothing is impossible for God. Nothing is too hard for God. He is saying, if these, hum, if these humans uh, think that they can build this city and do it through their inventions and, and do it without me involved, then they're going to think they can solve any human problem. So they are confused. There's suddenly multiple languages. They cannot communicate. They cannot uh, find construction. I mean, they cannot find consensus. And if they have no consensus, then they can't construct anything. I know. I've tried to construct things. I can't even agree with myself sometimes, okay? Now, I know that some of you, as you look at Genesis 1 to 11, you say, I, I'm struggling with the historicity of it. I, I don't struggle with it. But even if you are struggling with its historicity, I want you to know the teaching point is obvious. These people desired to make a name for themselves. And if they could do this, maybe they could solve any human problem. But to do this, they have to work together. Now, here is the issue. If it's one of the core values is uh, rigid human individual freedom. And yet another core value is that together we can work anything out. How, I don't know how these two, and throughout history, these two have never worked well together. So they could not, they were frustrated by God, and they dispersed to other parts of the world in fractured subsets. And the point is, humanity cannot unify because it is flawed and too self-centered. So whether it is the League of Nations after World War I, or the United Nations after World War II, or the 12 tribes of Israel would split into two, two nations, or it's even your little sister, unity is difficult, difficult to construct and very hard to keep. Secular humanism denies that our God knows us, it denies that there is a God. Secular humanism denies that God gives us a purpose for our lives. 
And that he is working within us to bring people first to him, but then also to unify on the earth. There will be unity. It is when Jesus Christ is Lord. I'll get there in just a little bit. And Lord of all. But the next thing is to understand that God is relentless in developing a relationship with us. If you are, you know, you understand that what secular humanism is, is just denying God and all we have is mankind. Uh, uh, you look at what God has done through the Jews and through his people, the church, and you look at what, it, what he's done there, then you understand that he is trying to bring all of the world together around him. And he leaves us with commandments that are supposed to be unifying us as we drop our self-centeredness and learn what it means to love. So he is relentless in pursuing us and to be, first of all, one with him. And maybe we think we can go it alone and maybe find a few others who are as brilliant as we are, but like it or lump it, we will eventually be frustrated. He has made us, first of all, to be one with him. And his part is to create us, to offer his love to us, and to be willing to re continue to relate to us. And our part is written in two little sentences. The first is Deuteronomy 6.5. Uh, 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The first command that God gives us is we're to love him. We're to have that relationship with him. We know he loves us because he's made us in love. And so Moses tells us, love the Lord your God. Now, there is another place in the writings of Moses that is sort of hidden in Deuteronomy. But Jesus made it famous when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus, instead of giving the answer, tells the questioner, well, what do you think it is? And the questioner gives, the own, gives his own answer. He already knew what he thought they were. But among that is, the second is this. In other words, the first we agree, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew 23, 39. So there is one commandment of love to God, a second commandment of love to your neighbor. He does not tell us, get together, come to consensus with each other. He tells us to come to him, our creator, and to listen to him. And we unify around what God tells us. Over the millennia, we have attempted various versions of human society. We tried to make our species progress and become more noble with you know, through different types of government. We've dedicated ourselves to better health, both mental and physical. We've experimented with uh, styles of family life. Um, we have solved problems with experts and we've worked on self-help techniques for ourselves. And we try all these things for a season, but we find that we can exert ourselves only for a season and are usually disappointed in the long-term results. They are less than perfect and even less than we had hoped for. And so when it's all complete, 
we are left with our imperfect selves and surrounded by people who share our imperfections. And to claim that humankind has progressed is ludicrous. What you read in Genesis 11 continues to go on today. Now, have we progressed? We have knowledge that we store in clouds. Our science has definitely progressed in understanding how the world works. So knowledge and science, yes, we've progressed. We have data that's unbelievable. Economically, we are living better than we ever have before. But down at the core level, aren't we still self-centered? Aren't we still finding it difficult to find consensus, even those that we are most dedicated to in our lives? See, at our best, we will be at our best when our relationships are right first with our creator as he has designed us to relate to him and then we learn to live with one another. Well, I'm engaging humanists all the time um, and we're in an age in which uh, <clears throat> uh, we find that many people are saying uh, the human race is Obi-Wan Kenobi. You know, help me, Obi-Wan, you're my only hope. Uh, if we don't pull it off, it's never going to happen. There is no God that we can rely on. Uh, <clears throat> uh, we have our individual freedom, but, but you know, if we don't get together and make things different and change things, uh, then we're going to be an extinct uh, species. So I ask when I'm dealing with humanists, first of all, I try to listen and have them clarify, what does he really believe? Because I like to engage them. And, I, and by that, I don't mean lecture them. I just like to have them express it because most of them are really not clear of where this is headed. And, and, and then I say, well, okay, tell me, if you can't quite describe what it means to be a humanist, can you tell me what is the most successful expression of humanism throughout history? And um, when they start to think of one, it doesn't work. Can I... Sure, one that I lived through in the 60s and 70s, communal living among the hippies. Now, many of you are way too young to have you know, been around for that, but it was sort of cool. Um, until it got to who's going to clean the latrines? Who's going to cook the meal? Who's going to wash the dishes? Who? 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 And someone would emerge who would say, well, I'm in charge here, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do this, and you're going to do that. Usually in the 60s and 70s with this communal lifestyle, people would come in that last for three or four months, and then they'd move on because it took away their freedom. Others will say, well, socialism. It's organized around a central government that's dedicated to making all people equal. If you've ever studied socialism, you'll find that the governments are led always by people, bureaucrats, who live far more equally than those that they try to help. They find that, gee, I, we don't know how, but all this good stuff is coming to us that's not coming to others. 
And friends, every time socialism tries to uh, you know, uh, rear its head, the same thing happens every time. There are the privileged and there are the underprivileged. So it really hasn't worked. Uh, and it probably never will. So what is the most successful expression of humanism existing today? Another question I ask, and they would say, oh, Denmark. Or um, how about uh, Scandinavia, Sweden, and Norway? These countries where they are taxed 70% of higher incomes uh, have sort of insulated themselves and their, their claims are useless. Take Denmark, for example. It's a great country, uh, but uh, Denmark is one-third the size of, uh, I'm sorry, it is the size of Massachusetts with one-third of the population. There's almost no immigration until the last two years, and they have no defense budget. If any strong socialist country wanted to come in and take it, they probably could. Um, and their own sociologists are now writing because they recognize that their culture as they knew it is crumbling. There is no incentive to the Danish people. So there is no great success to secular humanism. And there never, ever will be. And it gets to this. They really think Man is basically good. And I would love to find and befriend a man or a woman who is basically good. Not that they don't do good things, but at our core, we are here for ourselves. Let's pray. Father, Whenever the Tower of Babel occurred, Moses wrote it down to be that first example of man's prideful expectation that if we just work together, we can be great. We know that's true in the church. When we're unified, people notice it. But we know where our unity comes from. The humanist is still wondering, how do we get together and work it out with no God, with no code of conduct, with just ourselves? Father, my prayer, as I uh, know some of these people in our community, is that when I walk up towards them, they'd smile. And they'd want to talk to me. They would want to relate to me. They'd want to share their lives with me. And they would let me love them for who they are, God's brilliant creation but like me, fallen. I don't want to push them away. I want to gather them in.
I pray for those of us who know such people in all different walks of life. We'd invite them into our lives. Listen to them. Engage them. Take them all the way down to where their philosophy is leading. Let them see for themselves. It's going to be empty and unsuccessful. And Lord, I thank you in Jesus' name. Thank you for, for Babel. Could there be a better example of trying to do it without God? In Jesus' name, amen.